0: Hey everyone, your podcast feeds do not deceive you. Digging for Kryptonite is all new on a Tuesday. That's right. From this installment forward, new episodes will release on Tuesdays rather than Wednesdays, giving you more time over the week to download, listen, and enjoy. And for this week in particular, I'll be dropping a special second full-length episode on Thursday. As always, thank you for tuning in, make sure you're subscribed, and please take a second to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. My journey as a Superman fan started with a tattered red cape blowing in the wind. That ending rocketed me forward like a red-blue blur through a decade-long origin story and poignant tales of self-discovery and now fatherhood, and backward to the character's very beginnings. Now, on this podcast, we journey together across time and media to examine the stories that have defined the Man of Steel. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. This is The Villain of the Story, a multi-part event examining Superman's ultimate opponent, Lex Luthor, across time and media. In Part 1A, we are going to look at Pre-Crisis Lex, a.k.a. The Mad Scientist, as depicted in a selection of Golden, Silver, and Bronze Age comic stories. Then, this Thursday, I'll be sharing a special bonus episode considering the Pre-Crisis Lex in TV, film, and animation. Now, joining me for part 1A is returning guest, Rich Roney. Rich, welcome back.
1: Thank you for having me. I, I'm super jazzed about, I am super jazzed about this. To terrify your listeners, I've put about four weekends of work into this. Uh, for For reading maybe a dozen Silver Age stories that are maybe 16 pages long, I've gone off the deep end. So I'm jazzed. I'm really looking forward to this.
0: Well, when we, we started our FaceTime call here, I saw you holding a stack of papers and I asked if those were your notes and, and indeed they are. So I, it's it looks and sounds like we'll have plenty to talk about, uh, which is always the case and always always enjoyable and always appreciated. Cool, cool. So there are a couple of questions that I plan to ask each of my guests over the course of this Villain of the Story event. And so I, I do want to start with that. The first is, I, in my introduction, described Lex Luthor as Superman's ultimate opponent, and that's certainly how how I see him, but I don't want to take that for granted with any of the guests. In your mind, is Lex the ultimate Superman villain, or is there someone else or others who you would put above Lex?
1: No, Lex, to me, in my mind, is absolutely one of the big three, and he's, he's, it's, it's like picking your favorite child, right? Uh. There's phenomenal elements of Lex that I think are done brilliantly for him to be an opponent to Superman, but then I also think Brainiac and Mongol, in my mind, and then as you've pointed out, Zod, those are the big four. Lex holds his own with all of them. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think the the one thing I'll say, and then I want to let you drive this more, but... One thing I thought was brilliant about the Silver Age was they really didn't give him superpowers, so he couldn't go toe-to-toe physically, but they played up his genius and his intelligence. But because he was intelligent, Superman was intelligent. And I have incredible fondness for this era, the Silver Age, because this is exactly when I first started having the ability to buy and read comics. So some of these stories I have immense fondness for. And I'm, I'm just thrilled to start unpacking this and, and digging into it whenever you're ready.
0: Gotcha. Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. But just to, to continue setting the table a little bit, the other question that, that I'm curious to ask everyone is, which version of Lex do you think of first? Like when I say Lex Luther, w- which incarnation comes to mind? Because really the... I think the, the main driver for me in wanting to do this event was really motivated by just my curiosity about the ways in which the character has evolved in terms of the the motivation. What is really driving that animosity towards Superman? Because we've seen different versions of that over the years. Uh, so the motivations and then also the means, right? So we have the pre-crisis mad scientist in the war suit. We have the 90s, you know, boardroom businessman. We, we've seen these different iterations of the character. And so I'm just fascinated by the characters' longevity and versatility and evolution. That was really driving it for me. And I know for myself what I think of when I think of Lex. I think my listeners can can probably guess. It's you know it's a combination of that the the '90s evil businessman, but even taking it a step further, it's it's Michael Rosenbaum from Smallville. I mean, that's who I think of uh, first and foremost when when I think of Lex. Uh, as much as I enjoy different aspects of other depictions, that's sort of first in in my heart i suppose uh, but i'm curious for you like when i say lex luthor which whether it's comics or or an adaptation what's the what first comes to mind for you
1: uh i'm very ambivalent on this some of the things i love the most see there was a um in 1965 there was an 80 page annual that was published It was uh, 80-page giant number 11. It was an all-Lex annual. And either I bought it or my brother bought it. And the first story I ever read about Lex was in Action Comics 277, The Conquest of Superman. So I was really introduced to Lex when, and this drives me nuts, when his uniform was his prison greys that he wore for about 20 years. 10 or 12 years, you know? I mean, this guy would break out of prison and he'd keep his prison prison suit on. Um, I know the purple and green jumpsuit was introduced in 1974. I remember being in high school and seeing that. But I would say to me, everything I've read very recently, like say in Forever Evil or some more recent stories is just a continuation of the foundation they built in the Silver Age. Uh, it's an evolution and a continuation i i'll say this fast because i I don't want to waste your time but i think post-crisis they could do a lot more with lex they could dig deeper into the the motivations and the characterization and his psychosis and his his megalomania they could do it more but in both pre-crisis and post-crisis by virtue of this research, I was just stunned at the versatility of the character. I mean, he can go from being very, very evil and malevolent, and like we saw in Superman 149, totally evil. They can play up his ego and his megalomania, and then in other stories, they show his humanity, and certain times, they veer over to where he's an, uh, an antihero. So th- this guy, the range... Uh, impresses me. And I think it's a credit to different writers to tap into different elements of the character at different points in time. I
0: I agree with all of that. And and next week, we'll be looking at the evil businessman, Lex. The week after that, in part three, we'll be looking at the mid-2000s period where a lot of those pre-crisis elements that had been jettisoned post-crisis started coming back. So we saw the war suit. They reintroduced the idea of a history with Clark and Smallville. So a lot of those elements that had fallen away came back Um, So that'll, that'll be part three and part four, we'll be looking at a selection of stories that really point more to the philosophical motivations of the character. And there's a very specific selection of stories that we're going to be covering for that. So that's a little overview of of where we're going with, with this event. Now, in terms of what went into the selection of these stories, as always, it's um, for me, I, I guess, somewhat of a, a balance of factors uh, availability is one and I've complained about the DC app and, and all that stuff plenty of time. So I'll, I'll leave that there. Uh, but so part of it was what is available. Uh, you had put together a list of some of your favorite silver age stories when we did our silver age Superman episode last year. So I pulled a little bit from that uh, and I just, I, you know, did some research and found articles, you know, top Lex stories. And there were a few things that, you know, that sort of kept coming up. So those were again, some of the factors that kind of went into the uh, picking these stories so we'll get to the Silver Age in just a moment, but on the Golden Age front, uh, what I read was Lex's first appearance in Action Comics 23. Uh, I took a quick look at Luther, Master of Evil from the newspaper strips. I didn't spend a ton of time with that, but I took a quick look at that. Uh, I believe you you looked at the Action 23 as well, correct?
1: I looked at both those. Awesome. I saw. I was able to read both those stories.
0: And then there were just a few others that I read that were on the app, thankfully, that I, I don't believe you had a, a chance to look at, but that's perfectly fine. Uh, I read Superman number four, which was Luther's earthquake machine, uh, Superman number 10, which marked the first appearance of Bald Lex, and then the Power Stone two-parter. Uh, this was very interesting to me. This was a quasi-crossover story uh, between Action, uh, Action 47 and Superman 17. So those were the selection of Golden Age stories that I looked at.
1: Okay, I uh, I read 23, Action 23. Um, I read the newspaper story. And I have, years and years and years ago, I read the Power Stone story. It was reprinted in one of those, maybe in the early 70s, um, one of those 100 pagers. So I'm familiar with the Power Stone story. Now, uh, for your listeners, I never really read Golden Age Superman. I was... I was knocked over with Action 23. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing about Lex was they do show him as a warmonger and uh, his brilliance, like, you know what? I'm going to pit all these nations fighting against one another, and then I'll swoop in and I'll dominate the world after they've depleted their energies. But what blew me away, and I don't, I don't want to squander time, but my God, the ren- I've never seen that rendition of Superman. The rendition of Superman just knocked my socks off because he is a no-nonsense um, bruiser. I mean, th- there was one scene for your listeners that I will carry with me forever. One of Lex's henchmen, he grabs the guy, and he, they're out on a mountainside. He picks the guy up in a wrestler's move over his head, and he goes, you better give me answers or I'm going to smash your brains against this wall. And I've I've always seen the Christopher Reed general Superman so uh, the rendition of Superman blew me away and then also the it was almost like a a 1930s B movie serial you know with the henchmen and the, the evil headquarters but uh, but that was the foundation of Lex he was a megalomania and he was wanted to dominate and ru- rule the world
0: yes so first I'm I'm with you. Last year when I covered Golden Age Superman, it was a revelation to me to read those early stories and uh, Bruiser is a great word. I mean, he he really was that that you know, the champion of the oppressed, you know, that's that's one aspect of it, but but beyond that, yeah, this this vow against killing and the sanctity of life, you don't see that at play as much in those early stories.
1: <laughs> yeah, and 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 in the story we're tra- talking about for your listeners, I mean, he's I think they shoot a bomb at him through a huge cannon. He catches it, throws it back, and he kills about eight soldiers. He jumps up into a plane and he takes their machine gun and he shoots down other planes. And then he, I think he rips one of the wings off one plane and he causes another plane to explode when he hurls it at them. I mean, forget the sanctity of life and forget this kinder, gentler Superman. He was a real, you know, he was a juggernaut. Knock him over and punch him.
0: Yeah, there was a, a, real, a real spark to that character, to, to put it mildly. What, along those lines, I think what sort of jumped out to me the most was he brings about the, 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 the downfall of Lex's floating headquarters, right? Yeah. And reading it, you know, just instinctively, I assume, like, okay, he's going to grab Lois and he's going to grab Lex. No, no. <laughs> he grabs no. Lois. And he's perfectly, he's perfectly content you know it appears that lex has met his end when this aircraft crashes and of course that's not the case and lex will continue to come back again and again but there's no there's no qualms at all about the fact that he you know basically caused lex's death seemingly it's it's fascinating and the line about bashing the henchman's you know brains against the wall we get an an echo of that in i think it's the next issue that i read superman number 4 uh, there's this earthquake machine that causes an earthquake in Metropolis is being developed by this um government scientist and Lex tries to get his hands on it and at one point superman grabs lex and he's holding him up near near a uh, an airplane and he's like like i'm going to smash you against it's like let's see what cracks first the metal or your skull and it's like whoa <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh my god but it's it, they're wild there was such there was such an energy and you know um uh, and I don't say this in a derogatory way, but uh, but like a, a roughness to those to those early stories in terms of the characterization and 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 even the the craft of the comics. But there's such a charm to it. Like I love it. I don't say that in a negative way. It was again like just this wild energy as as the character was emerging. Crazy. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. So yeah, that no the, nonsense.
0: No, not no. Exactly. But so that the earliest Lex from from Action Twenty Three to the to the few other stories that I took a look at here. In, in all these stories, he's only known as Luther, right? We don't have a first name for him. He starts off in that first story with a head of red hair and it won't be until a couple of appearances later in Superman number 10 where he's drawn with a bald head. As legend has it, that was a mistake by one of the artists at the Schuster Studio that the artist mistook uh, Lex for one of the henchmen in, in an earlier story and drew him bald. And, you know, that's how we end up with bald Lex. And, and yeah.
1: Anthony, if I can interrupt, in Action Twenty Three, basically, Luther's the only bad guy with a head of hair. All the henchmen are bald. Right. Right. I mean, so uh, yeah, it it just yeah.
0: I know. So, in so in Twenty Three, yeah, you have the bald henchmen, and then also even in in Superman Number Four with the Earthquake Machine, one of his henchmen there is bald too. So it's I understand, I guess, why <laughs> why there was a little bit of. <laughs> A little bit of confusion, but he's only known as Luther. He has the red hair to start. He'll later be drawn bald, and like you said, later on in the Silver Age, we'll see him largely in those prison grays until he transitions to his purple jumpsuit and later the green war suit. But here, especially in that first story, is the red robe, the cloak. So a very different look, but the bones of the character, man, are there. From the very beginning, and I think if one thing really stood out to me, other than bashing brains against walls, was <laughs> was when Superman first comes face to face with Luther, he says, what kind of creature are you? And Luther says, I'm you know, just a man, but I'm a super genius, and I'm bent on world domination. And just that, that, you know, that question of like, you know, what, what are you, and he's just a man, and that will fuel so much of what's to come. Right. And and I think why Lex occupies such a unique place in the pantheon of, of DC characters generally, but especially Superman villains. You know, there are other non-powered Superman antagonists, but not many and not not who can challenge him nearly to the level that Lex can. True. Um, so it's just interesting that that's the, like the first thing that Superman says to him, like really setting the stage. No one could know what was to come, but it really sets the stage for it in an interesting way.
1: Yes, I've I've always viewed Lex as the DC version of Dr. Doom. He's not as malevolent in appearance, but in versatility and, and different motivations and his agenda. And even, we're going to touch on this a little bit later, even when he's evil, Luther has his own code of honor, um, much like Doom. Um, but we can get to that a little bit later.
0: Uh, Sure. I, I will say uh, just about the, the power stone, a two-parter. So a, lo- a large part of that story lives up to its title. There's this this gem that will imbue Lex with powers. But even before that, he creates this device that allows him to absorb electricity and convert that into power. So he, he powers himself right. that way. What was so funny about that, he's captured at the end of the first story and he's sentenced to death by execution at the start of the second story. No one... No one thought that that might be a problem, given that he just figured out a way to absorb electricity. <laughs> they're real quick, they're real, real quick to send him to the electric chair, and it backfires because he just absorbs that, and then he moves forward with this plan.
1: Now, Anthony, I have not read this story. I remember like a hundred-pager, maybe in the early 70s, 1973 or 74, but they did have a reprint of the Power Stone, and you still had the, the very stocky, strong, uh, like a, a linebacker, Superman. But if I remember correctly, didn't do... This is when they got a little very child-oriented. Didn't Superman defeat Lex by going, well, I bet you can't run upside down over the uh, ceiling? Yep. And Lut- Luther runs, and then the power stone falls off, and Superman regains... My memory is he regains his powers.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So well, so kind of on that note, this idea of, of this challenge uh, between them... In Superman number four, Luther's Earthquake Machine, something very interesting happens that I feel you can you continue to see play out in numerous other ways as we move forward, where Luther issues a challenge to Superman. You know, Luther's trying to get his hands on this government created earthquake machine. And he challenges Superman. He's like, I if my if my scientific prowess and inventions can beat you, you know, you'll stay out of my way. And and if not, I'll, you know, I'll I'll abandon this plot. That's the that's the gist of it. And so, you know, like they have a race where Lex is in his plane and Superman's flying. And, and in the end, it turns out Luther is just using this as a diversion to distract Superman while his men steal the earthquake. machine. <laughs> but, like, Superman goes along with this contest, which I find so fascinating. And you continue to see that in other stories. I mean, I know we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Lexor in the Silver Age. And the whole kickoff to that, which we'll get into, is Luther challenging Superman to a duel under a red sun, and Superman going along with it. I mean, I, you know, we could talk about it more when we get to that specific story, but I mean, what I don't know, what is your take on this? I mean, is this just a convention of, look, we're writing these stories for kids, and, and you know, we're just kind of you going know, to roll with it? Or, I don't know, is there anything more we can we can glean from the fact that Superman accepts these challenges? It's so fascinating to me.
1: Um, I do want to dig into it much more when we get to number 164. Um, But that is a recurring theme, right? And I think, if I may, my vague memory is like in 164, Superman felt compelled. He had to accept it. Otherwise, he would lose face in front of the society he protects. Um, Now... It just flabbergasted me, you know, Superman should kind of know if he's on a red sun planet, uh, he's probably going to be at a disadvantage. So the fact that he didn't think that through, um, we can debate it when we get, get to that story.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think the last thing I have on, on Golden Age actually ties to a much later story. So this was not part of our official reading, but uh, Superman number 282 marks the first appearance of the purple jumpsuit. Yep,
1: 1974,
0: yeah. And so in that story, so now at this point, we are in the Bronze Age. Right. And we have the beginning of the iconic purple suit that we'll see a lot of. But the premise of that is, and I don't know if you, if you remember this one, but Luther figures out a way to reverse Superman's age, so he like shaves yes. 10 years off of his life. So yes. he's younger and his memories, he loses his memories along with that, right? So he's, he thinks he's, you know, 19, 20 years old. He Like he marches into Perry's office and he's like, I want a job. And what's, it's so funny with that because Perry goes along with it. He's like, oh man, working in TV has like really messed with his head. Like, all right. And he like, just plays <laughs> along. It's great. But this this younger Superman, I mean, I really feel like there was an attempt to to really harken back to the golden age because he is a lot more brash and impulsive and and angrier to be honest. And there's one point where I think he, like he throws a henchman out of, out of a window or a plane or something and he eventually catches him, but he doesn't rush to do it. It, It's, you know, it really kind of, it really evokes what, what had come before in the golden age. It was a nice nod to that. I mean, at one point he says to Lex, he goes, go suck a lemon. (laughs) It's like, so funny, now, and, but anyway, it made me think of you know reading that much later story made me made me think back to that golden age version.
1: Yeah, the impulsiveness. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> did not have that particular issue, but I bought the issue right after it, or, or an Action Comics where Batman and the Flash were similarly de-aged, and Luther is beating these kids up. Uh, they're like ten year old kids. Um, I, I, Anthony, that was so long ago, but I can remember that was when the, the purple and green jumpsuit was first introduced. Um, and I can remember, you know, uh, it was a Neil Adams cover. I seem to recall, but, uh, but I don't remember the elements of the story. Yeah.
0: It, <laughs> I mean, that was, that was really the, that was the gist of it, but it, it did make me laugh. I mean, losing the memories, you know, that's a big piece of it, of course, but the fact that, you know, that he was able to de-age Superman by 10 years, it's like, it's Memories aside, it's, like it's almost a gift. It's like you're <laughs> me 10 years back. This is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah. All right. So that's a snapshot of Luther in the Golden Age. Again, this this super genius, mad scientist bent on world domination. I mean, that's really, that's, that's the end game for him. He wants to rule the world. We'll be back in action in just a moment, following these words about our sponsors. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. Since 1983, this nine-time Eisner Award nominee uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material available. They pride themselves on their significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available to anyone anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the AcmeCast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. I was fortunate enough to have my work shown at these festivals, and I found them to be very enjoyable and well-run events. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at FilmFreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news and updates about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and currently under new ownership, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Flat Squirrel Productions is an affiliate of BCW Supplies, the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP, that's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions, to save 10% on your order, and it helps support the show. Thank you. Now, as we move into the Silver Age, I'll share this, the list of stories in a second, but let me ask you this because as people will hear us talk about, a lot of the stories we're reading deal with Lexor, this planet under a red sun, where Lex becomes a hero. Fascinating, and we ended up with a, a run of issues. It really forms, and we, you, you and I had talked about this off mic uh, a couple of weeks ago. It really forms quite a story arc when when we put these oh, issues God. together. Now, like I said, I got these these suggestions from 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 your picks and from reading articles about the best Lex stories, but the effect it had, I guess, was you know in my mind lexor really looms very large in in terms of silver age superman stories and lex stories in particular is that is that accurate or is it just that we happen to have read a bunch of them i mean i guess for you as thinking back as a fan it's like how how predominant was lexor in the silver
1: actually, age actually anthony i researched this particular specifically for this discussion in the entire silver age Lexor only appeared in about 12 or 14 stories. And some of them wa- was like the uh, Virus X made Superman, they th- thought he was going to die and they put him in a, a funeral spaceship. And one of the stories is he just flying by Lexor as a planet, right? And so it's only there for a couple of panels. So in totality, Lexor only appeared in about 12 or 14 stories up until 1986. And I truly believe and we're going to get into this with the stories that were selected. They between those Superman 164, 167, 168, those action comics that you read and Action 544, that could be a trade paperback all by itself. And for all essentially you've got the same creative team, writer, artist and inker doing all those those six stories I just mentioned. So Lexor was very rare. Um, it was very rare, but I think, I think, quite frankly, that was almost a continuing story in a time when they did a lot of uh, done in one.
0: Gotcha. Now, interesting to get your take on that. I, I was saying this to you right before I pressed record. I, I really enjoyed my reading for this episode, um, and and in particular these Silver Age stories, though I enjoyed the go- I always have fun in the Golden Age. Don't get me wrong, always have fun in the Golden Age, but these Silver Age stories, I found them far more emotionally resonant than than I thought I would. Uh, Can yeah, I, I, yeah. No, but go ahead.
1: I'm, I I do want to say this, and I I want to get into all these stories discreetly, but I want to share for you. I have an immense fondness. For some of the stories, the Silver Age stories you just referenced, because again, I can remember one or two of them being published and I was able to buy them at the time they were published, even though I might have been eight or nine years old. But what I loved about these stories, I did a lot of research on this, was the consistency of the creators. I mean, I'm going to make this fast, but it's really relevant to some of the elements of the stories. But from an art standpoint, you had Kurt Swan, and any Kurt, Kurt Swan introduced me to Superman, and I thought there was a degree of refinement and elegance to his artwork that was superior to other artists of the time. I loved his rendition of Superman. I thought there was an elegance to it and a crispness, and I also thought he did a great job with facial expressions and emotions in the face. Um, But he was the artist for 30 years, from 56 up to 1986. And I think it was really disgusting, the treatment he got when they dismissed him from the title, because he was their guy for 30 years. Um, But what fascinated me, and I never knew this until I started spending the last two weekends digging into it, um, Edmund, Edmund Hamilton wrote many of these lex stories, Uh, Edmund Hamilton and his wife were both sci-fi novelists for their entire careers. Um, But they also did other things outside sci-fi novels. His wife, Lee Brackett, was a Hollywood screenwriter. She wrote a lot of hard-boiled detective Humphrey Bogart things in the 40s. And the final work screenplay she did prior to her death was The Empire Strikes Back for Star Wars. So she had a lot of range in doing Hollywood scripts. He, from 1950 to 1966, worked for DC, wrote about 275 or 280 books, but he wrote Superman, Superboy, Batman, World's Finest, Legion of Superheroes. But there there were four big themes to Edmund Hamilton's work. One, he told a lot of stories from the view of an outsider, the protagonist or the chief character was an outsider and how they dealt with society or an adverse community. Second thing, he was really, really, um, he felt political disagreement should be resolved through respect and principle and discussion, never through violence. But in terms of the stories I grew up with, Uh, he had two huge themes. One was good people doing good things. And there were sub-themes of redemption and sacrifice and a lot of other stories that we're not going to touch on today. But then also another big uh, theme or uh, element that he used was he would frequently take the protagonist and completely dislocate or displace them, throw them into an entirely foreign environment like a superman or action comics 300 superman under a red sun and we saw some of that with number 164 Uh, and then also he would frequently take have one character take on the role of another character i remember reading the day superman became the flash where you did this juxtaposition where superman takes on the essence of the flash I also remember being about 10 years old and reading a story where world's finest from the fifties where Superman vanished and Batman and Robin get called to Metropolis and they have to fight Superman's opponents. They have to investigate things, but they don't know where Superman himself is. So that, that moving one character into the role or the environment of another, uh, Hamilton does that a lot. And I think we're going to see that in some of the stories. So I have immense fondness. I grew up, I didn't know this guy wrote these stories because they never gave credits. So I spent I spent a lot of time, you know, researching stuff on uh, Grand Comics Database or that wiki um, uh, thing you told me about.
0: Awesome. No, thank you for doing that research and for sharing that. And that definitely lines up, you know, when you were mentioning the themes and Uh, you know, Hamilton's general approach. I think that lines up with, with what we read. So I I really appreciate that. And, you know, what I was going to say was, as far as what really struck me about these silver age stories, I guess, how do I put this in my mind? When I always think about Lex and the evolution of the character, I guess I always looked at the pre-crisis stories and I sort of thought like, Oh, like, you know, there was animosity because Superman was in his way in Lex's way. And, I, you know, because I didn't have, I didn't have the experience of reading those stories. And now that I have a a much better sense of, of what they were all about, I mean, you really see how personal it was between these characters. What a true grudge. And, you know, we'll see, there are certain points, you know, one of the questions I had, and we can circle, I'll just throw it out there now. We'll circle back to it later. But there are certain points where I'm reading these stories and I'm like, look, I love Superman. He's the hero, my hero. But I'm like, maybe you just leave lex alone on lexor you know there there comes a point where it's like what are you what are we doing here you know so you, you kind of do see it from both sides now, and then the other thing that um so like i said i found these stories very very interesting personal uh you really do see a lot of humanity and tragedy when it comes to lex and and mm-hmm. uh, especially his time on on lexor and but to your point about the protagonist What was interesting, I think, I don't know if my perspective is skewed because I'm going into this for purposes of understanding Lex, right? So I'm like Lex is on the brain, but reading a lot of these stories, they read more like Lex stories than Superman stories per se. At least that was my take as I was reading them. And, and I, I, again, I just really found it very, very interesting. So just so people know what we're, what we're talking about, as far as our Silver Age selections, how Luther Met Superboy from Action from Adventure Comics 271. We talked about that when we did our Silver Age episode, but it, I think, bears a, a, at least a brief revisitation here. Uh, same with The Death of Superman from Superman 149, the imaginary story where Luther kills Superman. Again, we talked about that last year, but we can touch on it again. And then I think really the meat of it for us the showdown between Luther and Superman from Superman 164, the team of Luther and Brainiac from Superman 167, Luther superhero from Superman 168. And then there was a two-parter that I guess you have, you've had read in the past, but not necessarily for this episode, but I was able to read it on the app. Action 318 and 319, the death of Luther.
1: I'm with you. I'm with you on each of those stories and all of them are set on Lexor and you see the evolution both of a character and the society on this planet. Um, so uh, like I said, I, I DC would never do it, but you could take those five stories and Action 544 and put them in a trade and I think it would hold together extremely well.
0: I do. I mean, that's how we read it for this and it it really... I, I, yeah, I guess, you know what, I think that was the other big thing that I was surprised by, because when we did our Silver Age episode in, in the past, you know, it was really more of this, this you know, we were jumping around, and you, there wasn't necessarily a sense of cohesion, but you read these these issues, and you really do feel like you're reading a, a story arc, and you know, it's funny, I mean, I don't know how much, if anything, I knew about Lexor. I mean, before this reading project, if you had said, hey, like, what do, what do you know about Lexor, I, the broadest of strokes if if that so this was really eye eye opening for me i, I have to tell you now before we get to lexor we have this or oh, the origins like lex gets an origin story in adventure mm. comics 271 and if i'm not mistaken this is the first time he's given a first name correct yes yeah right so we gets this yeah. he gets his first name we now uh, are introduced to this idea of a shared past between superboy and lex in smallville and the revelation that Superboy hates uh, that <laughs> maybe Superboy <laughs> maybe goes both ways, uh, but Lex hates Superboy. He blames Superboy for his baldness. Superboy was trying to save him from this lab fire. Used his super breath, the chemicals. Uh, Lex was exposed to these chemicals, and he lost his hair. I mean, what is your take on this as an origin story? Do you find do you find this a compelling backstory and a compelling reason for the the hatred towards Superboy?
1: When I was 9 and 10 and 11 year years old. Yes, it, it made sense then. It, it gave a foundation to Luther's hatred and animosity. Um, again, everything we're talking about now, my first exposure to Lex was that annual in 1965, and the first story ever was Action 277, uh, The Conquest of Superman. So when I read this, when I I was much younger, and I remember reading reprints of this, uh, uh, the Adventure Comics you referenced, 271, I go, oh, wow, they were classmates. And then all of a sudden, they had this great, great divide, and Superboy was altruistic and earnest. He tried to help, and Luther misconstrued it, and he was vengeful and resentful. Uh, So I found it fascinating, but looking back at it now, I was much more impressed, and why don't we use this as a segue, there, there was kind of a modernization, I think that Elliot Magnin did, um, where they modernized and updated this exact same story, and they, they really told the same story, but gave some of the same elements, but made it more contemporary for the time. Uh, the only thing I'll say is, uh, with respect to both the story you referenced from whatever, 1961, and then the more modernized version by Elliot Magnon. Uh, Luther's not as smart as he thinks he is. I mean, when he put those big uh, weather vanes or solar panels up, it didn't, it didn't end well. The people were pretty hot. Yes. I'll, let, I'll let you expand on no, it. No, I mean,
0: that's, that's the thing. I, I feel like the, you know, Luther blaming Superboy for the baldness, that's sort of the headline. I think from that story, but there there are other interesting aspects. Certainly, what you're re- referring to, you know, Lex goes on to invent all of these things to uh, to benefit the town of Smallville. You know, seeds that will grow, you know, larger vegetables, but then the, the trees are, are are gigantic and are going to crush the town, or the weather device that you mentioned that was going to keep them warm in the winter, but then it's like going to burn the town. And so, you know, it, it is one of those funny things where we we do hold Lex up as this genius. But then, <laughs> you know, you see these instances and you wonder, I mean, I don't know, is, is he just not as smart as, as he thinks and we think he is? Is it that he's so consumed by the hatred for Superboy that he, you know, he can't think straight? Do we chalk it up to the, you know, the, the inexperience, right? He's younger at this point. I, I, you know, maybe it's it's somewhat of a mix, but I know it is so funny. It's like, man, you're not really doing a good job with exactly. all this stuff. Yeah, even
1: even as when I was a child and I read uh, the reap print of when superboy met lex or when lex meant superboy um uh, just to go out, uh, down a rabbit hole for a minute i think on the first page lex is going out to meet superboy and out of nowhere a kryptonite meter meteor right lands right next to superboy and lex takes like a tractor and pushes it into the water so he saves superboy in the first like two pages of the story I think in gratitude, Superboy builds a laboratory for him. And then as as you referenced, a fire breaks out and there Superboy's flying by and he uses his super breath to put out the fire, unaware that the chemicals are gonna douse Luther in such a way that he's made permanently bald. And that's the impetus for his hostility and anger and hatred towards Superman. So he must've been incredibly vain. Um, narcissistic or just megalomania I, I i don't or all of the above i guess
0: yeah it when i think when you when you talk about luther ego is is definitely a driving factor in so much of this and the, the one thing one little detail not not, not so little i guess is i agree with with everything you laid out there but there's also this added wrinkle that luther is a superboy fanboy yes yeah. You know, he shows Superboy his this lab, and it's it's got all of these photos of Superboy and, and mementos from Superboy's adventures. <laughs> You've got to imagine Superboy's like, whoa. <laughs>
1: and, Anthony, I know you're going to unpack this more in one of the other episodes, but didn't they do that in uh, Superman uh, when Byrne relaunched? Like, early in the show, The Secret Revealed, or that episode, they su- show the John Byrne Superman finding this secret, um, like... Uh, a uh, lab uh, library or museum. And they've got all these memorabilia of Superman, you know, like the first church of Superman. And it was stuff Lex had assembled.
0: Funny enough, man, when we get to a part three of this, we'll talk about it more if, if I remember, which I'm sure I will, but in Smallville, there's a pivotal moment, you know, of course that shows all about the friendship, the deteriorating friendship between these two guys. But you know, there's a, a moment in, in towards the end of season three, where Clark discovers this room that Lex has has assembled um, with all of these, you know, files and artifacts relating to Clark. So it is interesting, you know, it starts off in this first story as something positive, right? He's a fan of Superboy, and we'll continue to see different versions of that, of Lex having a room, you know, on Superman or on Clark, but, it, you know, it takes on a very different air as we move forward. But it's interesting to see, again, just to see the echoes of this as we move forward. I've... Look, I, I've been fairly dismissive in the past of of this adventure comic story. A, I historically I've not been a fan of Clark as Superboy. I've talked about that. Um, I, I guess it also, you know, it it reads as a, as a little bit silly, right? That this is ultimately the the reason for all of the hatred that Superboy caused him to go bald. Uh, you know, to your point, it's like, is is Lex really that vain? However what i What I really appreciate, and especially now that we're looking at the larger picture in all of this, is that it introduced this idea of of personal animosity like there's something personal between the two of them beyond like we get in the golden age that like Luther is bent on world domination and superman's going to stop him there's There's a personal element here which I think really just takes things to another level and when, when I really think about the full picture of all of this, and everybody knows how formative the Smallville TV show was for me, you know, Smallville was able to take the f- basic framework, right, that we got in the Silver Age, this idea that Clark and Lex were contemporaries in Smallville before Superman, before the Lex Luthor, right, that they had this shared past and that they started as friends. Now, look, in this adventure comic story, they're friends for like two pages. It's real fast. But the bones of it are there right and the, the the foundation is there and it can be built upon later so while this particular story might not do much for me per se the ideas that it represents i, I think are very valuable they add a lot to both characters and and like i said i mean it, it formed the the basis for one of my absolute favorite incarnations of the smallville mythology so i i'm very i feel a lot of gratitude toward that adventure comic story
1: now I'm going to ask you, like I said, there was a modernization that, that Elliot Magnon had done. Yeah. What was your take on that? Well, that, that was the Luther. story a little later in time, the Luther Nobody yeah, Knows. Yeah, the
0: Luther Nobody Knows from Superman 292. I mean, I'll be honest, a part of this might be just because they're all kind of blurring together. I mean, I, I remember reading the story. I don't. I don't remember being floored, like, oh, wow, like, that really added such a new layer to the adventure comic story. But it was more just this question of, like, what, like, and there's, there's a story we're actually going to talk about next week about how much can one man hate? But that was more what stood out to me about that, like, this question of, like how, like, how much does Luther hate him? Why does he hate him so much? So I think it really got more into that. I mean, was there something that jumped out at you? Because I, I, don't, I don't really have anything per se.
1: No, I saw, I, I, I thought the subsequent one, the Luther Nobody Knows, or the Superman, the Luther Nobody Knows, rather, that uh Kurt Swan and Magden did. I thought it was more of a refinement of Adventure 271. I was more interested in how it portrayed the two of them as high school classmates, like conducting a science yes. experiment together. And it seemed not so much Superboy, but Clark and Lex had a really good friendship and they got along well. And even Lex would do like little jokes with Clark, like this'll surprise the classmates or the other the other students. Um, I thought the two tied tied together very well, um, and like you said, it did give a personal impetus, you know, a, a personal motivation. They were friends, and then it soured. Um, whereas, and I don't want to, I don't want to. This is not the apropos, but you look at like uh, birthright. They didn't have that growing up together. It was more Lex was resentful that this alien had more power than than him, and he was almost um, misogynistic in not misogynistic, but you know xenophobic and just look, you're an alien. Obviously, I'm going to hate you. I'm I'm the preeminent guy on this planet. Now you're 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 casting a shadow over me.
0: Well, birthright, we're going to talk about that in, in part three. But birthright did it did spend a, a decent amount of time with Clark and Lex as As classmates and they and they did have a friendship it, and then there was sort of you know Wade kind of did a twist on uh the adventure comic storyline, right so it wasn't clark causing his his baldness, but it was um Clark reeling in pain from the the kryptonite that um that Lex had discovered, but Lex mistook Clark's pain for uh being disgusted with lex
1: oh okay, yeah, okay, got gotcha. you.
0: So we gotcha. definitely got a good bit of that there. All right, shall we go to Lexor?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Well, I, I'm going to toss it to you. Would you la- where would you like to start?
1: Um, well, I, I, I want to throw this out and let you activate the questions a little bit later. But of this selection we went through, and I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm not doing Lexor as much as a common theme, but I noticed of the selection... There was Superman 149, there was Superman 167, which was part of the Lexor theme. And then there was action 318 and 319. And I was so impressed by how each of those stories touched on the judicial process and formal judicial hearings and decisions. So I do wanna come back to that. But let me say this real fast. So indulge me for a minute. You had Superman 149 and I know we covered it in our Silver Age thing, we had a wonderful discussion, but the whole thing there was Lex is willing to cure cancer so he can lure Superman into a situation where he can murder Superman. So to me, that was Lex at his absolute un- unqualified evil. He's he's a supreme murderer. Uh, and he like injects Superman with kryptonite and the guy dies. Um, the three Lexor stories we're going to talk about real fast: one sixty four, one sixty seven, one sixty eight. They hang together so well, and they were published so close to one another. Um, but, and I'm going to let you ask some questions, and we'll we'll touch on each of the stories one by one. But the interesting th- common theme there was in these three stories, you really see Luther's humanity. In each of these stories, he takes an action that puts the welfare of this this civilization and this this population above his own agenda. In each of them, he puts their welfare over his own objectives. And that really humanized it for me. Um, I I was just very, very impressed. It it, it, It drives home more the tragedy that, look, this guy's evil, but boy, he does have a side of goodness to him. So I, I I'll, I'm going to start this and then I'm going to let you let it breathe and expand it. But su- the for the for the listeners, the essence of Superman one sixty four is, and I forget how because they all do. I, uh, Luther breaks out of prison.
0: <laughs> Wait, can um, we talk about how he breaks out of prison? Because this was I think this was the right one. Hopefully, I'm not conflating this with one of the other issues, but. I know, obviously, this was a recurring theme, right? Lex is always in prison. He always finds a way to break out. But <laughs> I laughed out loud, and it was late at night, and I was like, oh, I was afraid I woke up, my, my wife and, and son upstairs, because I I, it made me laugh so hard, where Lex is, of course, in prison, and the stamping press is not working, yeah. right? And he convinces the substitute warden, not the regular warden, because the warden would know better, but the substitute warden to, uh, to allow Lex to fix it. And so Lex... Re- refashions it into a a tank basically, and the funniest thing about this that I really literally made me laugh out loud was when the little warden's like, "Are you sure you fixed the stamping press? Like it doesn't? It looks very different. It's like, yeah, no kidding. It looks like a tank."
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I vividly remember that. I vividly remember that. And then it <laughs> it, 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 it it's a very. It's not just a stodgy, slow-to-move tank. It's got a lot of speed. It, pl- it bulldozes through a wall. He escapes on it. And, and Anthony, I'm sorry, I do get confused with this. I guess he goes to one of his lairs, which I forget which one. But he goes through the thing where he has, like, the statues of villains that, he, that impress him. And he's got some room with calendars for all the days he spent in jail and prison as a result of Superman capturing him. Um and I think he was watching a western movie where a bad guy calls out the sheriff or something and they decide to you know have a mano a mano fight and then superman or lex breaks into the the TV uh stuff and he challenges superman challenges superman and somehow lex identified this red sun planet Lexor and the two of them and I guess the deal is like look whoever wins they get to do what they want there will be done if lex loses he goes back to prison if he wins superman leaves him alone i believe that was the essence of it but they they build a rocket they fly to lexor and they have they have three different levels of fights uh the first fight is they have a, a bruiser a bare knuckle each of these guys uh becomes like putin and strips down to the you know, strips off their shirts, bare knuckle fight, and Luther had to wear special boots to compensate for the denser gravity, and we never saw those boots ever again. <laughs> that, that was the only story where he had these gravity-adjusting boots. But he is beaten the snot out of Superman. He gives him a black eye, a bloody lip. He's really beating him. Then some big windstorm comes up, and somehow they each go their different way superman has to fight his way out of this giant cactus he remembers stuff from from krypton that helps him um, escape luther stumbles stumbles on some ancient technology that he immediately comprehends how it works and the people of this planet it's really a desert-like planet they desperately need water and there are certain big birds that threaten to steal the water he comes up with a water hose that Shoots the birds away. The populace loves him. Then Superman and Lex get into a gladiator arena and have a fight. And then the essence of this is that at the very end, Luther throws the fight. Throws the fight. They're flying back. And he tells Superman, hey, can you throw these giant uh, ice mountains from one planet? Can you throw them over to Lexor so we will help them rehydrate the planet?" So he put their needs ahead of his own, and he doesn't even, you know, Superman suspects he threw the fight, but Lex doesn't admit it. And there's a very heartwarming panel at the very end where Superman shows him a picture of, hey, they built a statue to you because they revere you so much. Now, I I didn't plan on doing that. You know I can get verbose giving these stories, but oh, and quite frankly, uh, this woman changed her name from Thela to Ardora, I mean, she made it pretty clear she was going to be pretty happy to help him out any way she wanted to. She was very, very attentive to Lex. Let's put it that way.
0: Indeed, and so this planet, you know, it's it's not even named initially, and then they rename it Lexor in his honor, and we find out in a subsequent issue that they were this advanced civilization, but exposure to those rainbow crystals sort of devolved their their minds and their thinking and you know that's how we end up with this somewhat backward planet when we begin and they can't figure out how to how to bring water to to their cities and that's what lex is able to to help with i mean we touched on this before it's it's really interesting that superman would go along with this challenge your point is well taken right that uh you know maybe there was a concern about how the people of earth would view him if he backed down from this challenge although on the on the flip of it it's like well you're abandoning the people you claim to protect to go have this battle that you might not come back from. So, you know, what's, you know, what, what's the trade-off there? But I, I think regardless of, you know, the, what it takes to get there, I think any instance where you can have Superman or Clark and, and Luther actually engaging in fisticuffs, and a lot of, you know, whether it's Lex having powers, which is fine, or I think more interestingly, when Superman doesn't have his and they can actually engage on that, on that level... Is always interesting to see, and and all of that animosity, like, just really comes out in a way that it, you know, it, it normally can. Like, it's so visceral when they're really just punching each other. Uh, it, it was throughout these stories. I guess the one question I, I kept coming back to was, how pure, how true are Lex's feelings and intentions towards Lexor and the people of Lexor? Because, you know, initially when he helps them, he he wants. Them to help him find Superman, yes, right, uh, so he helps them with the water and but then he he very quickly finds that he likes the response that he's getting from the people who are viewing him as a hero, who are valuing his scientific mind and then later in that story, like you said, he th- you know it's very very interesting it's a whole different side of the character where you see him throw that fight, but I, I guess I mean how much of it was I, I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want to let down these people who have put their faith in me versus, you know, the way they'll feel towards him. Like, I mean, how much of it is looking out for their interests versus, versus himself?
1: I, I applaud your question. And even as we were preparing for this, I wrestled with this. Because I think at the very beginning, he helps them in a manipulative way, so they'll help him find Superman, right? I really think that was the the primary thing. And then didn't he realize, like, oh, my God, I can't help them. I can't give them what they need. And I think, I think as it progressed, at the very end, there's no doubt in my mind that he put their needs above his own, where it was no longer like, I'm going to use these people to corner Superman, I think he, there's no doubt in my mind, he threw the fight so Superman could get outside that, that sphere of the Red Sun and take actions that would benefit the population of that planet. So I, I think he it became more, he moved away from the desire for adulation and concern for their welfare.
0: Fair enough. And I, I definitely think that makes it, I think that's a valid take. And I think that's, that's more interesting right that way than if it's if it's really just selfish and he, he you know and he enjoys being in that position I, I think if he doesn't care at all then then this I, is not as interesting
1: i think i wonder that the phenomenal question would be because at one point in there he realized oh my god i can't help these people i can't save them if he had been able to save them would he have killed superman on lexor and just stayed there and ruled the planet? That's in, that's a what if question. I don't know. I mean, but I think he became attached to them. I think it would have been entirely different if he could have figured out I can rehydrate this planet. Those uh, those uh, digging machines, I can find water and I'll rehydrate it. And then you know what? Let's kill Superman because that guy, you know, that guy has been a thorn in my side. It didn't play out that way.
0: Right. The other thing too that's 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 so so cool about this this whole arc is that. You know, Lex gets to live out the Superman story, right? He arrives on another planet and becomes their champion. And in one of the stories, he even adopts a costumed identity, the Defender.
1: And superpowers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Before,
1: do you want to go through Superman 167, the team up of Luther and Brainiac?
0: Sure. Do you want to give a a page by page (laughs) breakdown? (laughs)
1: I I don't think. Well, let me say this for your benefit and the benefit of your listeners. So, I can vividly remember seeing Superman 164, but I never read the story until I was in high school. It was reprinted in a Superman annual. So, even though it was published whenever 1963, it was 10 years later before I read Superman 164. I never read Superman 167 until this reading. But vividly, as a child, I can remember—I must have been nine, nine or maybe ten. One of my classmates had an older brother, and he was going to throw out Superman One Sixty Eight, uh, where Lex Luthor, superhero, where like you said, you've got Lex Luthor with superpowers in a masked identity with a red costume and a like a cowl. I vividly remember reading that one summer, either when I was nine or ten, and just loving that story, just loving that story. But uh, for the first time ever, I read that team-up between Brainiac and Luthor, and that was a long story. That was like 27 pages.
0: That was a long one, and I know I know how much Candor means to you as well, so that must have been cool to see the Candorians come to the rescue in that one, yeah, right?
1: Yeah, and, and again, it taps into that stuff about the judicial system. Uh, and how they, they put Superman's welfare, they let the villains go, so Superman would be removed from that, that coma, and he would no longer be incapacitated. They, they, and even at the end, he makes like an, an honorarium to them, like, look, I, I owe you guys I'm gonna do everything I can to live up to your standards. Uh, one thing I found, if I may, well, two things I want to say. One, it's a very long story. It was more of a Brainiac, or equally a Brainiac story. Um, but this was the first time, uh, until you saw Brainiac, you never knew he was not human. In the earlier story, he was just a villain in a spaceship that shrank cities. So this, you, you, we learned for the first time, he is not human.
0: And he's very concerned about keeping that a secret.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Uh one of the things that struck me, and it was a long story. They travel all over the place. But at one point, they go to Lexor, and they need certain elements to do some, I guess, one of the, the ray guns that they're going to build to take down Superman. But Lex Lex immediately says, no, 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 we're not going to do it here. These people need their resources. And that was one little panel. But once again, he was putting the welfare of that population Above his agenda, the agenda that he and Brainiac had. The other thing that I do want to say, and I learned this through this research, one of the big stories that Edmund Hamilton wrote in the early 1930s was for like Amazing Tales or, or Weird Tales or something like that. But he wrote a story about when society was taken over by, by robots and computers, and it's exactly what he did with the origin of Brainiac. In his futuristic tale, people came to rely on robots and androids so much that they took over the planet they were on. And he, this was from 1930. 35 years later, he reinstilled the same story here as the origin of Brainiac.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, this was again, it it definitely touches on Lexor and that's where we leave Lex, right? He, he, he stays on Lexor at the end of this story, but yeah, it really is far more a Luther Brainiac team up, which I'm I'm glad we're, we're covering this, um, you know, this story because I think that Luther Brainiac team is, is an iconic one. And I I hadn't even really thought about that until, until right now, but the first pre-crisis story that I ever read was the final one was whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. And Lex in that ah. in that story, right? That's that's the, uh, the final Luther Brainiac team up. Now, this is actually one of the things I was going to ask you, and maybe this is a, as good a time as any to bring it up. The, the question is whether or not, and I know I didn't, I, I'm springing this on you, but uh, you know whether or not Lex's treatment in whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, where he is, I mean, really within a page or so, taken over ah. by Brainiac and just puppeted by him. Uh, until he is able to break free for a second and convince Lana, who has powers at this moment, to to kill him to put him out of his misery, uh, so he's really just like a meat suit for Brainiac in that story. The the question I wanted to pose is, especially as someone who grew up reading a lot of these these stories and the Silver Age stories in particular, was that a fitting end for for Lex in whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow?
1: Boy, Anthony, I I apologize. I wanna think about that a little bit. I mean, I love that story, but they packed so much in there in two issues that I think in many respects, they didn't do just, they basically, look, we're gonna consolidate everything, we're gonna tell a story, we're gonna close this. This is the last chapter of the Silver Age. I don't think it was a fitting end for Lex, but I think every single character throughout that whole thing just got a uh, you know three or four panels, and that was it. So I, I don't think he was. It, it's it's disparaging because you know, like you said, he was just basically a human body that Brainiac's intelligence ran. Um, but it's not my favorite perspective on Lex it's not but I think it was it was an instrument of the story they had to wrap it up
0: yeah fair enough and that's the thing as far as the amount of, of screen time per se that I didn't have so much of an issue with but yeah just the way the way he was used uh, I mean I love that story overall and I think I, I mean you know people might might take issue with the final fates of certain characters I mean the, the story has quite a high, quite a high body count but I feel like virtually all the other characters uh you know were were Given their due, more, way more than than Lex was in that. So yeah, I, I for me personally, especially now having read so many of these stories, I don't love that note that that the pre-crisis Lex goes out on. But but in any event, I bring all of that up just to say that before I had any real conception of, of pre-crisis or the, any of the history that that had come before, I, I did read that final <laughs> Luther Brainiac team up. So it's cool to to go back now and read the first one and. Right, like you said, we get this this revelation that Brainiac is really an android, and and uh, you know Lex Lex discovers this. I, I liked how Lex was able to free Brainiac from the prison that Superman oh, had yes. left him in. He was, you know, he knows Superman well enough to know that, you know, he wouldn't let any he wouldn't you know would let Brainiac die. Right, so if there were anything that were going to threaten Brainiac's life, there would have to be some sort of fail safe. Superman would design some fail safe. To allow Brainiac to escape, and sure enough, he's right. Like he starts a fire or whatever, and and the then the gates open, so again, just shows how well he knows the character. And well, the other thing that I thought was cool was the and we get the two sides of this because when when Lex is working on Brainiac, right, to upgrade the yeah. the, the you know the the, the intellect. Uh, you know he builds in this this timer, which I thought was so funny. It's like periodically Brainiac will just like shut down, and he needs Lex to you know to to boot him back up. But then you know Brainiac is able to turn the tables later on the hip, it, through the hypnotic it, machine. Through yep, yeah, right right through hypnotism uh, to get Lex to remove that and to forget that he's a, an android. I mean he was really yes. he was really fixated on that. Which I, I mean I know we're not doing a Brainiac episode here, but wh- why why does that matter so much to Brainiac? I
1: I have no idea. Uh, Maybe, no, Anthony, wasn't there something in the story that Brainiac's original assignment and objective was to appear human so he could infiltrate other societies for the computers on his world to later on take over? And the only thing I could surmise is maybe they felt compelled or... Just to keep it going, like his original assignment was to infiltrate other societies. He had to appear human. Didn't they even give him a, 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 a stepson or something like that? And mm-hmm. uh, there was Brainiac 2, and then he was the ancestor of Brainiac 5 in the Legion, who was
0: human. Right, and they give you a little editor's note about that. It's like, aha, at last, now we know that Brainiac yeah. 5 is not descended from, from Brainiac himself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so... so do you want to jump to Superman 168?
0: Yeah. The last thing I would say about 167, again, I I love the Kandorians coming to the rescue. Yes. The judicial process aspect was, was interesting and the choice that they were faced with. And, you know, I, I think their choice was a justifiable one. I mean, aside from the fact that we need Superman comics to continue, but beyond that, I think their, you know, their, their choice, you know, made sense given, given who Superman is and what he does and what he represents. and, that he's their best chance of of maybe getting freed one day. (laughs) A little self-interest in there as well. But uh, yeah, no, I like that a lot. And and I would imagine at the time, especially since you didn't really, you know, these weren't serialized stories, it was probably cool that Lexor made that return appearance, right? Because you read Superman 164, you don't know if you'll ever see Lexor again, right? So it's probably cool to see that back in play.
1: Yes, yeah. And Anthony, both 164, which I think I read, maybe the 1973 or 1974 when I was in high school, that was 164. I never read 167 until this assignment or this this research, this discussion, but I did read 168. My first exposure ever to Lexor was Superman 168. That was my first exposure ever. And that is a wild story. I mean, you've got two different writers You got Edmund Hamilton who did the first half, and was it Leo Dorfman who did the second half? So radically different, radically different. Um, I'll let I'll let you tee it up. I think you're more concise than I am, and then I'll just interject the humor for some of the wild things, if that's okay.
0: Oh, so you make me do me do the uh, the boring part, and then you come in with the jokes? All right, not kidding.
1: No, no I, I I tend I tend to run at the mouth, and I want to be respectful.
0: No, no, so. no. It's uh, this is I'm having so much fun doing this. No, I, I guess this was what I was referring to earlier because, again, at the end of the prior story, uh, you know Lex stays on on Lexor. So in this one, if I remember correctly, right, Superman is taking the proactive step to go to try to bring him to justice. Yep. And so I guess this is my question, and this is as good a time as any to talk about it. I, I mean, look, as far as the you know the the nuts and bolts of of the episode uh this is this is the one where or the issue this is the one where uh, Lex is able to give himself superpowers and he adopts the costumed identity of uh of the defender, the defender. right and the this defender. is where we also get the revelation about the rainbow crystals that are um you know that that sort of uh, impair the 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 intellect of the people on the planet and uh, you know once again to your point uh, you know an instance where you know, Lex allows Superman to leave the planet with the crystals, to rid the planet of the crystals, uh, you know, for the benefit of the people. So, so again, I, you know, like I said, one of the themes for me was just this idea of, you know, this intense personal grudge, the issuing of challenges to each other and, and sort of the honor between them and the cooperation when the situation really calls for it, you know? Uh, but, but I guess, and, and, like I was saying before, another instance of him sort of, you know, being on a parallel track to Superman himself. It's like now he's been rocketed to another planet. He's become their hero. He's adopted, he's developed powers. He's adopted a costume. Yet it doesn't, you know, it never, you know, never brings him to the point of abandoning the, the crusade against Superman. But th- you know, so it brings right. them even more in common. It's so fascinating.
1: Well, and it's, it's, it's a powerful inversion, right? You've got a complete inversion. Like you said, Lex finds some machine that can give him temporary superpowers, flight, super strength, x-ray vision, all of Superman's powers. He adopts the defender identity where he conceals his true identity because he's afraid, and this this is what gave me a problem. He's afraid that his enemies might strike at at Ardora to get at him, but everyone on this planet worships him. So, so okay, I thought that, but okay, I'll, I'll go there. But you got this inversion. He's got all the powers. Superman is viewed as the criminal on this thing. He's the one who's chased. So you had, you know, uh, Han- uh, Hamilton's themes of taking one character and placing them in the role of another one, another character's role. You got complete inversion here luther's the hero superman's the guy who's on the run as a crook
0: so i guess that brings me back to the the question that i had raised earlier where because i think it's most most prominent in this story where superman really goes after him goes after lex on LexCorp. now obviously you know lex has it's justified right it's warranted lex has has brought about enough death and destruction he he deserves to be brought to justice i would never argue against that but at the same time clearly He's not someone who can be kept imprisoned, as we've seen that over and over again. <laughs> and so if he's found a place where he's actually contributing,
1: you know, he's, he's, a, he's a
0: contributing valuable member of that society. He's on an entirely different planet. I mean, I guess, you know, you could argue, well, he could, you know, he could launch an attack on Earth from there. I mean, you, you don't know what he will do. You don't know what his true ambitions are so. Certainly, you know I I could see it from Superman's perspective. But did that thought cross your mind as you were reading these? Like, why not just leave them there?
1: No, uh, Anthony. <laughs> I was perhaps nine or ten years old when I read Superman one sixty eight. I, I I loved it because I saw a great similarity between Lexor and Krypton, or Lexor and Kandor. But I, I I wasn't savvy enough to. Think about the philosophical thing. Like, look, Lex is happy; he's not causing you problems. Why don't you just leave him alone? Um, I wonder. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know how much of this might have been influenced by the comics code, and you know, they had such a rigid code that you can never portray evil in certain lights. Or did or did they want to keep Lex around as a villain? to oppose Superman, oh, or both, I don't know. Yeah, no,
0: I mean, l- l- let, me, let me clarify. I don't, I'm not saying, oh, I expect that they would have done that, right? Like, I, I, I certainly get why, you know, in terms of the stories they were telling and the, the comics they were making and the audience they were making them for, why why they would have Superman go after like, Like, I totally get that. I, I wouldn't expect otherwise, but I guess more as a thought exercise. It's like, <laughs> mm. you know, you, you do sort of wonder.
1: Now, I, I will say, this was a two-part story and it was phenomenally different the first half on Lexor and then what transpired in the second half although it was done by a different writer, right? What was the 1906 uh, San Francisco earthquake and stuff like that and uh, they go back in time and Luthor takes on the role of the editor of the San Francisco Daily Planet and Superman Oh, Luther subjects Superman to some type of red kryptonite that was painted onto an old 1906 fire truck and it removes Superman's powers for a a brief period of time. Um, When I read that story now, read it for this discussion, Luther made a lot of dumb, dumb moves. Like he didn't realize he was going to go back in time. When they do get... um, pulled back to the proper modern era of the time. Sup- uh, Lex is trapped in a prison cell in Alcatraz, right? But when I read that story now, I attributed his dumb mistakes to his own exposure to those crystals where briefly he wasn't as sharp as he should have been. And that, that was the bait why he made those those mistakes. That was only reading it, you know, maybe two weeks ago that i that i came up with that that speculation on my part.
0: Hey, i think that's a valuable a valid interpretation. Although, if we go back to that adventure comic storyline, maybe this is just par for the course with him. He's not as bright as, <laughs> as everyone thinks. Well,
1: but but then uh, to his credit, right? Like when he's on Lexor, he can quickly adapt to all this technology and all these machines so quickly you kind of do think he's a genius right uh and his mechanical ability to build a tank out of a uh, washing machine in a prison is pretty good
0: yes yeah no he, he i mean he no that's no i mean all kidding aside he he lives up to you know to to his uh his his title as as this uh you know super you know evil evil genius super super scientist so uh no for sure was there anything else about about that story that you wanted to talk about no,
1: no, I, I am angry. I know the next story we're gonna talk about, I think you were able to read in its entirety. Mm-hmm. I was able to get snippets of it. Um, I'm very excited about it, this, this next Action 318 and Action 319, which I really think, quite frankly, they intended to be a Superman story because it's so cohesive. And then for some reason, they threw it into Action Comics and divided it into a two-parter.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was an interesting one where, you know, Superman and Lex essentially have a, a rematch on, on Lexor, and Superman punches Lex, and Lex seemingly hits his head against uh, the base of a stone statue and dies, and, of course, the people mourn him, and they imprison Superman. And, again, to your point about the judicial process, so much of the story is about Superman's defense. He's he's assigned. you know, their system is not unlike ours, where if you need representation, you, you are provided that. You get a so, public defender? Yeah, so he, he gets these, these two defenders who really don't want anything to do with him. I mean, they're cons- there's this whole bit about how they're concerned about how uh, the rest of the society will view them for defending the killer of the hero of Lexor and you know, the, what we find out of course is that Lex is not really dead. He's taken this pill that uh, will, will basically put him into a coma mimicking death for, I think it's like a period of five days because he knows on Lexor, everyone has their trial within three days. And so he's very confident that Superman will be tried, convicted and executed in that amount of time. And he'll wake up and Superman will be gone. That's, that's the plan. But what what i think i guess probably the most interesting thing about the story to me and and this points to what you were saying about the judicial process you know that theme in in edmund hamilton's stories but also i think the ultimate nature of superman because we've been talking about lex so much obviously but the nature of superman and what superman is able to bring out in other people the short version is that there's there's a moment in the story where it would be very easy for superman to to lie but he doesn't. He tells the truth about something uh that you know that could have benefited him and that is what is, is that that's what turns his defenders around. Yep. Right? And brings well, them brings them to his side.
1: From the tiny little bit I know. And and I I only gleaned it from excerpts and snippets. Uh but again, exactly what you said. This is almost like um a primer for an elementary school student on the American judicial system. I mean, they had a judge, they had a jury, they had due process, they had um, a prosecutor and a public defender. And like you said, from the little things I saw, the two men who were assigned to defend Superman were very reluctant to do it. They certainly didn't help Superman. I remember a couple of uh, pictures where, like, at at one of the tables when someone was being questioned, Superman goes, aren't you going to question her or challenge her? And they were very pragmatic, like, look, it's not going to help. If Ardara keeps crying up there, it's only going to work against you, right? Um, But they were reluctant, but they also believed in principle, right? I think – I can't remember the guy's name – Vel quinar or something like that and he had like a weird haircut and a mustache and stuff he looked like mo with a mustache um but he was very principled he didn't want to do it but he felt everyone deserved a fair trial and then i read later on that there was some truth plant and i'll let you take it you know it better than me uh
0: well no what i was gonna say was you know there was like when superman first lands on the planet uh he he meets one of the citizens there who um, ultimately double-crosses him, but initially he feigns that, you know, he's going to help Superman. But uh, the guy tells him about, I think it's a plant that can cause insanity or hallucinations or something like that. I think that's the basic setup where later on one of the attorneys, um, you know, basically proposes oh, cool. this defense that, oh, Superman had been exposed to this and it was, you know, he, he you know, wasn't acting of his own accord. And that's where Superman tells the truth. of like, no, like I wasn't, it wasn't close enough to be exposed to it or something like that. Right. And it was one of those things like, well, he could have lied and it would have directly benefited him there. So if he wouldn't lie about that in that instance, then maybe he really is telling the truth that he didn't intend to, to deliver that killing blow to Lex. And then one of the lawyers hey. visits him and, and, um, uh, basically Superman takes his place and, and is able to escape.
1: And now you're bringing back memories. And I think they did show a few scenes where they had capital punishment, right? And like you said, now this story, I, I wish I could read the whole thing soup to nuts, but this shows Luther's evil. I mean, he, I, I think early on, Ardora basically tells him, look, would you let it go? I want you to promise not to kill Superman. And he promises, okay, I won't do it. Mm-hmm. But he manipulates events. He deceives his his wife. I think they got married in the earlier issue. He totally deceives her. He sets this plan in motion where Superman will be executed, even though he himself will personally not directly do the killing, but he puts all the events into motion where Superman will be killed. So it does portray his evil again, where much as he he could be the ruler of this planet and live in happiness he's going to put his hatred of superman above in this instance he's willing to kill superman just to satisfy his own agenda
0: yeah and the sort of the i guess the the kicker to it at the end is that you know superman if i remember correctly he at least makes an attempt but the people aren't buying it that no one will get on board with the idea that lex had set all of this up Right. They all think he took that medicine, you know, the pill by mistake. Right. Yeah.
1: Accidentally. You know, which
0: again, just goes to show how much they idolize this person. But you know, to your point about Lex not being able to let it go and going back to what I was saying about Superman, not being able to let it go again, you know, we know Superman is in the right. He's ultimately justified in trying to bring Lex to justice, but just this idea, I don't know. There's something about it being two sided. Like neither one can let it go you know, when it comes to this grudge between the two of them uh, that, that I just think is interesting. And, and like I said, that thought exercise that I, that I proposed earlier, it's like, you know, you do wonder if, if Superman had just left Lex to his own devices on Lex, or, you know, you don't know what the result would have been, but like neither one can let it go. So it's not just, and, and I, I don't, not that Superman quote unquote hates Lex. And I don't think he would ever characterize it that way. But the fact that it's not just that Lex hates Superman, it, it goes both ways in terms of you know the the length that, that both of them are willing to go, even to the detriment of, of themselves or, or you know yeah. those around them. They're interesting. And,
1: and Anthony, I didn't think about it till you raised that that point, right? Superman does not let it go. He he just now maybe this is all speculative. Maybe he thinks like like you said a number of minutes ago, well maybe if Lex stays on Lexor he might do something damaging to Earth at a distance but then he might not just let the guy live in peace right but then I I think more of it was pragmatism the writers needed a villain for Superman right uh Superman like you said just could not let it go but but then also his selfishness on Superman's part I mean he's flying out to Lexor where he could die or, you know, even when he was in the jungle with that other guy that deceived him, he could have died, right? He had no powers on this. He kept his costume on all the time, which, you know, made him stand out like a sore thumb. But he was also putting Earth at risk because what if there were, you know, emergencies or a need for him on Earth? Um, So, yeah, it, it does speak to the fact that they're almost like, Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty, they are just two, you know, strong, strong, strong personalities that are very tenacious.
0: And and I, I like that a lot. And look, over these episodes, I'm going to reference Smallville a lot. And one of the things that I think always made Smallville so interesting, then and now, when I when I think back on it, was you always, you know, you leave that series with the question of, would Lex have turned out the way he did if Clark had just trusted him? And I think that's a valid question to raise. And so, you know, and, and I think that's something that even Clark himself wrestles with in the series, the extent to which he's responsible for who Lex becomes. Uh, so I, I just think it's, you know, so again, different different context, but the same kind of idea about the role that, that they both play. And I, and I guess even if you go back to you know adventure comics with the origin of Lex it's like yes it's kind of like silly and simple and it's you know with the, you know blowing out the the fire right but there too you know that's a very you know sort of basic literal uh, representation of what we're talking about but this response this level of responsibility that the character of Superboy or Superman bears for who Lex becomes I just right, think is, is right. a really uh, you know is a really uh, you know interesting aspect of all of this.
1: I agree. I, I didn't think about it to you voiced that. But the sense of responsibility that Superman or Clark imbues upon himself did he cause this or was he instrumental in causing the situation where Lex is such a villain and embodies this hatred. Um. I mean, the other thing that that is interesting here is it does hit into some of Hamilton's Hamilton's themes about, look, there needs to be decency. There needs to be principle. This was like a a primer on the American judicial system. So for a young kid to read it, you got – and granted, it, it was around when I was a kid, but you would have gotten a primer on, look. This is due process. You're entitled to these rights, but there is danger and jeopardy because Superman could have been a victim of capital execution.
0: Right. Exactly. So I, I kind of want to end on the rebirth story from from Action Forty Four, which in which we we sort of see the final fate of of Lexor.
1: I remember buying that book when it came out, Action Five Forty Four, and it was really. Boy, oh boy, they really retrofitted and upgraded both Luthor and Brainiac in the same different stories. I only read the Luthor story for this discussion. Um, Once again, Luthor goes back to Lexor. And he's been away for a long time. We haven't seen Lexor in ages because I think this story was the early 80s. Um, He finds some armor, war armor, or like an Iron Man type suit. Where it's no longer the the jumpsuit. Now he's got more uh, of uh, a war machine type armor. Um, but he, I think, he recognized that the just like Krypton, the core of this planet was unstable, and he put some some special scientific gravity rod in there to help stabilize the core. Superman comes over to the planet. They have a big fight. Inadvertently. Lex causes this planet to explode, killing the entire population in totality. But what hurt me, what really, and I know I'm going to seem like a real uh, crybaby softy, Lex goes back to Lexor and learns that he has a young infant son, Lex Jr. So you had this opportunity for great happiness. So when the planet exploded, I mean, it really, really hurt. I felt very saddened by the fact that this infant died and it all could have been avoided. So I thought this was a very tragic issue. And I know it was real powerful at the end where Lex emphatically voices his hatred. He goes like, you know, I might've thought I had hatred before, but it pales in comparison to how much I hate you now. He's like crying in outer space. He was the only one and he, he almost came close to saving Ardora and Lex Jr. And then missed it at the last microsecond.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said earlier, with this whole Lexor story, generally, it really it had so much. Like I said, showed the humanity of Lex, but but also the tragedy, and and you really see that come to a head here. And like I said, I knew so little about any of this, any of the Lexor piece of Lex's history before this reading project, so it it was really eye opening. To see this opportunity that he had, that he squandered by refusing to let go of this hatred for Superman. And, but also how, when we talk about the motivations for why he hates Superman, the level, the new level that this took it to, at the same time, though, like you said, this was early 80s. You know, we're very, we're getting very close to crisis now. So, I guess. I I mean it doesn't seem like there was really all that much time for this to really, you know, be you know I like I don't, and I guess maybe more that's my question for you as best as you can remember I mean how how often was this referenced afterwards you know how much of a driver was this for Lex hating Superman
1: you know I think it was a missed opportunity Anthony I really think it was a missed opportunity they were on the cusp of making a more adult or a more serious discussion and in action 544 they really retrofitted and refurbished both lex and brainia and they they upgraded them in their their menacing powers but they really didn't pick up on it after this i mean we're, we're gonna get into some like the uh, elliot magnan stories they were really telling a more serious Instead of written for 10 year olds, now written maybe for college students with this hatred as a motivating factor. Um, there was another story that I remember reading as a child. I think it was like Action 332. Swan did not do the artwork, but once again, Lex went back to this, this is earlier in the 60s. Our Dora learns that Lex is really a villain and evil, and she's very disheartened. And then Superman uses some plant that causes amnesia and makes her forget that her husband is a criminal and evil. So he showed a very altruistic move before he left Lexor. I couldn't find that. I don't think it's been reprinted much. Uh, Kurt Swan did not do the artwork, but it showed a very, very compassionate side of Superman trying to give Lex a nice life. But coming back to your immediate question about Action 544... I was so saddened by the death, death of his son, and his wife. He could have had a very happy life there. So, like you used the perfect word, the tragedy. But this story was at odds with other stories being published at the same time. I mean, like the Einstein connection was what, 1985, 1986. So they went back. I forget when I the Einstein thing was out. I think that was early '86. Um, but this was a nice wrap up to Lexor but other than using the war armor they really didn't tap into this stuff any anymore
0: yeah that's and, and look for anyone who's listening to this if, if you're like hey no there were these other stories where they directly referenced this and I know that Lex's immediate appearance after 544 I forget the issue number I know I know that was a direct follow up to this I scanned through it really quickly uh, so I, I'm not saying it was never referenced but you know, I, it doesn't seem like, it just doesn't seem like there was much time, right? Cause this was 83 crisis is just a couple of years away. So it doesn't seem like there was even much room or space for this to be fully explored in mind as, as really the, the crux of the, of the disagreement the between the two men. Yeah. But it, you know, it's, it's one of those things where going back to the, to that adventure comic story, I keep tying it back to that, but you know their superboy is just trying to help right he uses his power he uses his super breath to put out a fire it's not unreasonable but it has this unintended consequence of causing lex's baldness and that sets him on this path you know here it's just sort of a different different a variation of that right yes. lex is blasting him it i mean would. in this instance it's even less like superman doesn't even do anything it's just like the blast bounces off of him and hits his like it's really all of lex's doing but again i mean just time and again he just blames, blames superman, superman. Yeah, and again, the, going back to this idea of ego, it's like he cannot accept the responsibility. He cannot accept his role, his fault in what's transpired. But, but like I said, I mean, I think it just sort of takes what well, what reads as kind of silly through a modern lens of of that that first origin story for Lex, but but does it, and I think in a much more compelling way. And and I do think it's a shame that it didn't have um, as much time to sort of be. You know, at the heart of what's between Leberged. the two of them, because it's really, yeah. I mean, it's really compelling, and I feel like with that, you can not not to like psychoanalyze Lex, but how, like he, a planet died, the planet that worshipped him, and not just the planet, but you know, but his, his his wife and son, wife
1: and his infant son. Yeah. So it's like yeah.
0: I feel like your mind, especially Lex's mind, is like wouldn't even allow, like you you wouldn't even allow yourself to to be able to take the blame for it. Because how could you live with that? But if you can transform that into hatred for someone else, it's their fault. Maybe that's a way to kind of soldier on.
1: I, yeah, you know. he, he is self-deceptive. He does, Like you said, he doesn't have the ability to look look himself in the mirror. He had to blame Superman. It was Superman's fault, which, which ties right into that 1961 story, action, Adventure 271. It's not his fault this guy did it to me. Um
0: exactly. So like the stories get more, you know, get more mature and more nuanced and I think more compelling, but it's the same you know, sort of the same baseline at at the heart of it. Now, on a on a on a much lighter note, this is where we get the comics debut of that green war suit, like you said, and you know, that was and that was,
1: no, and they've they've sustained that. I mean, we saw that in the uh, Jeff Loeb Superman Batman run. So that that this this mechanized war suit or this war machine suit, it's had legs.
0: Sure. And I I mean I think probably most famously was, was featured in the Kenner Superpowers line of action figures, which which I have actually uh, on the table behind me there and was used in the in the superpowers cartoon and yeah, for a long time post-crisis that, that wasn't there, but as we'll talk about in part three of this event, you know, made a big return in that, in the mid-2000s with the return of a lot of these pre-crisis elements, but, you know, here's where, where you got it in the comics, you know, as far as the look of Lex, like I said, we had Superman 282, which gives him the, the purple and green jumpsuit, uh, which you would see, you would also see in the superpowers cartoon, um, and then he gets this war suit, uh, You know, I guess this, I'll just, I'll just pose this question because it's one that I kind of go back and forth on. I know ultimately where I land, but I can see both sides of it, I guess. (laughs) How, how much physical confrontation do do you, do you like to see between Superman and Lex? Because it's hard for me, right? I grew up with the post-crisis John Byrne, evil businessman Lex, like he's not the one out there in the field. Right, he's the one pulling the strings. He's the one creating Metallo and sending him out there, or creating Bizarro and sending him out there. But in a lot of these stories, I mean, you know, Lex is in the action. Where, yeah. what, what do you tend to to prefer? I prefer. I like it
1: more when you know you spoke very, very powerfully about their animosity, right? And neither of them can let the other guy go. But I prefer Lex as a human, without the um, electronics or the war machine suit. Because I I like him more when it's nothing but intellect, right? And I think that's a great juxtaposition because say what you want, Superman is viewed as brawn. So it's brain versus brawn. But like I said way, way early in this, the thing I find fascinating, Lex is so intelligent and so cunning, and so he can set plans into motion. The fact that Superman beats him, it shows Superman's intelligent. Um, But I prefer Lex more as intelligent, more of a general, and, you know, working things from a distance. I do not care for Lex going uh, in the physical toe-to-toe thing wearing wearing this uh, Iron Man-type suit. Uh, I don't care for it.
0: I I agree. Uh, I like I'm okay with the purple and green jumpsuit because I don't know it's it's either if it's either that or the prison grays. <laughs> it's Like I, you know I got something a little more dynamic, a little more colorful. Uh, but yeah, I do sort of feel I I have somewhat of a soft spot for the green war suit, probably because of that action figure and that Superman Batman Public Enemy storyline. I think that's I think that's where my goodwill towards that suit lies, but. But ultimately, yeah, I feel like that's maybe a bridge too far right i i i i mean, i mean i' like I agree with you totally. I think that's what one of the main things that makes Lex so interesting as a character and as a villain is that he challenges Superman in a different way, and so when you like i said, it's one thing when Superman's under a red sun and they have their fist fight and and you know those those instances are fleeting, and I think they can be used effectively. but if Lex is sort of always in that war suit and and having these physical confrontations you know what well, then, what sets him apart then from the others
1: right and and like to your point then it, he he's no different than bizarro or zod or mongol who have this immense physical superpower super strength they're the ones that give the 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 physicality of the fight too Lex is distinguished because he's got this intellect and it he creates plans. I even as a child when I was 10 and 11 years old I always thought Lex and Batman would square off against each other and very interestingly because they're both human and they're both very intellectually they use their brains that that's what distinguishes them. So I thought I thought even when I was reading World's Finest in 1965, 66, 67 I thought a fight or A parody between Batman and Lex would have been intriguing.
0: Right. Yes, for sure. Uh, I guess the last thing on Lexor is that, you know, the reason he puts on that green suit is to create a new threat that would basically be a diversion for Superman. And he, you know, because, you know, we didn't talk about this, but he lose, you know, the people finally realize before the very end that Lex was the one who, you know, who was, who you know, who was terrorizing the planet and, and, loo- you know, he loses, that's, man, it like, it really, it, it, it's a one-two punch because, you know, he'll physically, like he'll lose the entire planet in, in moments. But before that he loses the, the, the love and the respect of the people. So it just like adds that other layer and it's justified, right? I mean, he, what he did was not right, but again, just the, the tragedy of it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. It was, Action 544 was a more thoughtful, more adult written about the the consequences of evil. But it did wrap up the whole Lexor um, collection of stories. And like I said, Anthony, Lexor only appeared, I really researched with this like crazy. It only appeared in about 12 or 14 stories. So we really, I think, got the best of the stories in the list you created. I think it really pulled together an interesting thread and, um, an interest, interesting, very specific collection of stories.
0: Yeah. And I'll say this, you know, I put this to the audience. If there are other golden, silver or bronze age Lex stories that we haven't touched on here that you really recommend, please reach out. I, you know, I'm always curious to, you know, to know what other people think and, and to get other recommendations for good stories. But I will say, I mean, I really, I really stand by this list. I mean, these were really i i I found them very enjoyable, very compelling, and uh, like I said, very surprising. I wasn't expecting to have this story arc with Lexor, and I wasn't expecting to find it as you know as satisfying as I did, and 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 so enlightening. uh, You know, with respect to the character, uh, it it was really, like I said, a very pleasant surprise with this. So, and yeah,
1: one last note. I'm—I apologize. This will be fast but it was presented better because there was such consistency in either the writers and especially Kurt Swan doing every one of these stories. There was phenomenal consistency. So the look and the structure and some of the panels all all were very, very cohesive. Uh, I, I think it might've been more jarring if they just threw a different artist in there who you th- would have lost that consistency and that cohesive feel.
0: Definitely, now, I know we you mentioned the death of Superman from Superman one forty nine we didn 't spend time on that, but again, we, you and I talked about that in our Silver Age episode last year, so if anyone wants to to discover that for the first time or revisit it, I would recommend that. Uh, we did touch on the Luther Nobody knows from Superman two ninety two I guess this the man who murdered the earth from Superman two hundred forty eight and the Einstein connection from Superman four sixteen I mean, a long period of time between those two stories, but and I hadn't, I hadn't even really thought about this beforehand. But some commonality in that, you, you, again, you do, see, you do see humanity in the character of Lex. So in The Man Who Murdered the Earth, uh, just a real quick summary, Lex creates this galactic creature uh, who seemingly annihilates life on Earth, but it turns out that Superman had just shifted everyone to a different vibrational plane. But there's this sequence where Lex thinks he's, he has murdered the Earth, and when Superman returns and restores everybody, there's such a sense of relief in Lex and even a yeah. tear, you know, coming yes. down his eye, which, you know, I, I think is in keeping with the character. It's not, he's not, you know, he doesn't want to like, wipe out all life. You know, he wants to rule, I guess, but, uh, but, you know, just even just to see that and to see the regret and to see the relief when Superman saves the day, uh, I thought was interesting. What, what about you?
1: Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely, and and Anthony, what you just spoke about, I do remember reading that. Like I, I, I told you uh, about three weeks ago, I ordered Lex uh, celebration of seventy-five years, and this story that you just referenced was included in it. And he's so relieved at the end when Superman brings, because the the guilt he felt when he thought, oh my God, I've caused this. But I will say that. See, here's what gets weird. There are many stories where he's conscious of his own evil. Like I told you that 1965 80-pager that either my brother bought or I bought, I can't remember. But there was a story in there that introduced Lex's younger sister, Lena Thorall. Thor, Thorall. Um, and there was an interesting story. She lived up in some... She was a librarian up in some town in maybe Maine or something like that. Lois goes up to do an interview and Lex behind the scenes is doing everything he can to stop Lois from learning about Lena. And he's terrified that it's gonna be revealed that she is the sister of Lex. And he's very emphatic, he pleads with Superman and Lois in there, don't reveal this. I don't want her to be mortified or stigmatized or hounded because she's my sister. So he went to great lengths to prevent anyone from learning. He was conscious of his evil. He goes, I don't want them to um, stigmatize her because I'm a criminal. And there was a little bit of that in the story you just referenced where the, the tear is going down. He's relieved he didn't cause it. And then there was one other story that I remember reading. Um, it was a short two-page, six-page story in the back of, I was in college, senior, I was a senior year. And there was a short, it actually had those little backup stories. And this was like the secret life of Lex Luthor. And it was a six-page story where he breaks out of jail exclusively to give his eight-year-old nephew a birthday gift. And he hides from everyone, and he, he can escape on his own, but he lets himself be rearrested and go back to prison just so neither his sister nor his nephew will know he was anywhere near their house delivering this present. And once again, he was adamant that I don't want them to be hurt because people take out their resentment of me on them. Um, but, and it just seemed to tie into what you said about the end of that the man who murdered the earth.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Lena. So as far as Lex's family, uh, you know, we get, I think it's, I forget, I forget which of the origin tellings it it is, but, uh, the, the, this notion that his parents kick him out and disown him, you know, during his time in Smallville when he, you know, begins his life of crime. Right. And, uh, and then they were later, I know, killed in a car accident. Was that the the, the version? Yeah, and
1: it, it's so funny you say that. I remember, and I saw panels about this, in that Lois Lane story from, I think it was 1961, where they introduced Lena for the first time. Right. They show a little panel, and all Luther says to Superman and Lois is, is that our parents died in a car accident. But I found it fascinating, because much, much, much later, was it... Uh, They did like a a biography of Lex Luthor and was like a Donald Trump type uh, cover to the book. But basically, it's revealed that he caused that car accident. I think he uh, snipped the brake lines or he did something to cause the car to malfunction. Um, And and I found, wow, what a cool tie in between post-crisis and the early, early 1961 Silver Age.
0: Yeah, and that's the the uh, the unauthorized biography of Lex Luthor, and we'll be talking about that next week. I'm I'm excited to because I haven't read that since I was a kid, so I'm I'm excited to get into that. Um, but no, and as far as Lena, we will talk about her more I, I, in part three when uh, she is reintroduced uh, into the continuity in the Jeff Johns Francis Manapul adventure comic storyline featuring uh, Connor as Superboy. Uh, so we'll we'll talk more about her then. I mean, it's what's funny is I mean, I to me. Lena was Lex's baby daughter from the triangle era of the comics in the late 90s and early 2000s. Really? I mean, that's... And, you know, again, interesting to see how versions of these characters are woven back in. Uh, so there was, you know, a family member who was very dear to Lex, but it was his daughter. And, I mean, spoiler alert, we talked about this on the show uh, a couple of years ago now, but Lex uh, sacrifices her at the end of the Y2K storyline. He sacrifices her to Brainiac 13, in exchange for control over the Brainiac 13 technology. So uh, a real, you know, very, very twisted uh, outcome there. But, uh, but again, that's, that's the Lena that I know. But anyway, we'll, we'll be talking more about Lena as we move forward. So finally, this, this Einstein connection, you know, this idea that, that Lex idolizes, uh, you know, Einstein for his, for his intellect and his contributions to science. Uh, I know this is a story, you know, you've, you've mentioned this a bunch of times. What, what about it, um, you know, really, really stands out to you? Um,
1: Well, two things. Uh, uh, Let me get the the puzzling thing thing out of the way first, right? And then I I will dig into this. More than anything else, this shows, and it's a sad reflection, but the, the most recent story prior to this was the explosion of Lexor and the great tragedy and the hatred that Luther professed. But here, when you read this Einstein story, it's very wholesome. It's very wholesome. Like it's got a lot of really interesting attributes for respect for Einstein. And I think even Luther has a tear in his eye as Superman's flying him away. So it seems so so at odds with the most recent prominent story, It, it seemed really diametrically opposite. Um, I I have read that Elliot Magnin really really thought highly of Einstein and kudos to him for how he wove this into the story Um, and even given historical background on like Einstein working in the patent office and coming over on the boat uh, and coming off on the shore in America and things he did in Princeton um, it was a very heartwarming story I think the thing that I found interesting I don't know if you know it but There was the Einstein story, then there was like a six or a seven page backup story uh, immediately after it that had the same panels portrayed in each, but there was one point after Luther does certain things that a young boy almost drowns by virtue of Luther's actions. And he springs into action to rescue this boy from drowning. So it seemed to be very, very, you know, it, it seemed to isolate that, boy, his hatred is all focused only on Superman. And in some ways, geez, if he didn't waste all his time attacking Superman, would he have been a, a good guy?
0: Right. Well, that's an idea that that I know Grant Morrison plays with in All-Star Superman, which we'll talk about in our final episode here. So I think that's a very valid question. Uh, you know, not, not to pick apart this story, but, you know, do, does it, I know Megan, right, yeah, like you said, the author really uh you know had a lot of admiration for Einstein. I mean, does it track that that Lex would I mean his ego is so great i mean d- does does the idea of him, although I guess you know to your other point when we, when we're in Lex's lair, I mean he does have these other you know, like notorious figures from history,
1: but they're evil <laughs> so, right, yeah, yeah yeah uh,
0: but so but I guess my point is he does like it's not that he's incapable of putting someone on a pedestal or looking up to someone. He's not, his his ego is not so great that he can't look up to anyone. So, so fair point there. Uh, But yeah, I guess it does it, does it track that he would, that he would revere Einstein to, to, like, again, it's like, it's a nice story, but I don't know. Did did it ring true for you? Partially,
1: partially, Anthony. I mean, uh, candidly, I'm ambivalent on this because I think some of it, quite frankly, was, a convenience for Eliot Magnin to, it, it opened the opportunity where he could write a story about someone he was really impressed with, right? It added a nice dimension to Luther. It really added an interesting dimension where he might respect someone else's intellect. I found that refreshing. Um, but I'm kind of in the middle on it. it. It, 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 it didn't seem formational. In terms of Luther, it seemed like, well, this is someone I respect. But the the fact that he would break out of jail every year on that same day to celebrate Einstein's birthday, that was a little bit of a stretch for me. Um, but I'm kind of neutral on it. I mean, it was an interesting story. It probably educated a young reader on who Albert Einstein was and bits of his life. It showed Luther could respect another very intelligent being. But it wasn't the be all and the end all.
0: Gotcha. I have to tell you, I really enjoyed the reading. I really enjoyed this conversation. And it's given me truly a new understanding and appreciation for the pre-crisis Lex, who in the past, I guess it's fair to say I was always somewhat dismissive of, or I didn't think there was as much dimension there. And reading these stories, I've I've totally come around on it. So I'm curious, as I move forward with these subsequent episodes and my further reading and viewing um, how, how I will now view stories that I grew up with, uh, that I now have this added context for. So I'm really excited to continue along this journey. Uh, Is there anything else that you want to say before we sign off?
1: No, no. This has been such, such a joy for me. I mean, such an immense joy. Um, I learned a lot that I didn't know. And probably the last thing I'll say is I really, all the writers, who were involved in this? Siegel, Jerry Siegel wrote a few of these things. Bill Finger wrote one of the stories I loved. Uh, You had Elliot Magnet. You had some other writer. I can't remember that person's name. And then you had a lot of Edmund Hamilton. Uh, And I think Marv Wolfman or Len Wein might have written a couple Mm -hmm. of these. So it was fascinating how each, all those writers leveraged a different element of this personality. And boy, you got so many shades of gray, from total absolute epitome of evil to almost heroic attributes. And so you got this big versatile range. Uh, I didn't realize that had I not done all these readings and and got different writers' perspectives on how to find a facet of the character to leverage.
0: Well said my friend. Well, look, anytime i do I do pre-crisis, and especially Silver Age, I always love being able to get your perspective, especially as someone who grew up reading these stories and now you're coming at them with adult eyes. You have the, you know, the, the the nostalgia as from reading it as a child, but I know you put so much into the reading and the research for this and it adds so much. So thank you very much. Thank you audience for joining us. Make sure you come back this Thursday for part one B with Tyler Patrick from the Krypton report. We'll be talking all about Lex in the Kirk Allen movie serials, Donner movies, Filmation and Super Friends cartoons and Superboy TV series. Then, Part 2, examining the post-crisis evil businessman iteration of Luther, drops next Tuesday. Until then, remember, it's about what you do, it's about action. The spinoff podcast, Digging for Justice, a DC fan journey, is available now exclusively at patreon.com slash Desiato, starting at the $1 level. New episodes release monthly, And many more rewards are available too, including a robust back catalog of bonus podcasts. Thank you to all patrons for enabling me to produce this show.